God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you um, that you have brought us here and give us the opportunity to look at your word and, and how it applies to the Christian life. And we just ask for your help as we um, look at these things and um, ask that you would point us to, to Jesus and the hope that we have in him uh, as our Savior. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, so tonight we're going to finish this up with uh, the 8th and 10th commandments. Um, the, we're mainly going to look at the 8th commandment, uh, but we'll touch on just basic overview of the 10th uh, as well. Um, so the 8th the and 10th commandments here, the first is the 8th, and that's the, the commandment that says, You shall not steal, from Exodus 20, verse 15. Uh, so again, just a very quick command to not steal. And then the 10th commandment, we, we looked at the 9th uh, several weeks ago uh, as it related to our speech about not bearing false witness. We tied that into the third commandment about not uh, taking the Lord's name in vain, kind of took that theme of speech together. So we're going to jump over the 9th and look at the 10th. And it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servants or his female servants or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So uh, both of these commandments <clears throat> relate to how we deal with property um, and people, ultimately in, in the sense of our hearts towards them, as the 10th commandment talks about not coveting someone else's spouse or anything like that. But um, I'd say that the 10th commandment is is the one that is the most connected to the heart, the heart command to not even desire to take what isn't yours. So you shall not steal is clearly a, a command against taking what's not yours. Um, but then the command on coveting has to do with more of the motivation even behind that, which is interesting. Um, and so we're going to address the issues tonight of uh, private ownership, what that means, the concept of stewardship, uh, stewardship, and and how to uh, serve those in needs, uh, in need in our personal financial responsibility. So those are kind of the broader topics we're going to get into uh, as we look at this. So this will be the one that deals the most with finances and how we use our things and and what we do with them. Um, but let's just look at the eighth commandment primarily, rather than looking at the tenth um, specifically. The Eighth Commandment tells us not to steal. You shall not steal. And the, the Hebrew word for steal or to steal is um, used to refer to Rachel uh, in the Old Testament stealing her father's household gods in Genesis 31. It's, refer, it's used in uh, uh, Genesis 44 to refer to stealing of silver or gold from someone's house. It's used in Exodus 22, just a couple chapters after the Ten Commandments, to refer to stealing uh, an animal like an ox or a sheep. Um, it's even used in reference to stealing human beings by kidnapping in Exodus 21.16. So just fundamentally, the command teaches us that we should not take something that doesn't belong to us. Uh, that is probably pretty obvious from this, and, and I don't think there's a whole lot of complexity there. So don't take something that doesn't belong to you. That's the root issue behind this commandment. 
Uh, this command clearly applies to Christians today as we've, we've talked about this, this nuance um, throughout the, the class in that uh, what the Old Testament teaches may or may not be still uh, prescribed to us in the New Testament age. Um, basically, the way that we reinforce what is and what isn't is what Old Testament commands are repeated to us in the New Testament, what are reaffirmed, what are brought back into focus. And the the call to, what's interesting is that um, almost all of the Ten Commandments are repeated or reaffirmed in the New Testament. The only one that's not is the Sabbath command. That's the only one of the, of the ten that is not mentioned specifically in the New Testament as a morally binding uh, commandment. Now, there's obviously Christians who would argue that it still is and we went through that when we talked about the, the issues of the Sabbath. But the New Testament talks a lot about uh, stealing and how to use uh, this commandment in, in New Covenant times. So Romans 13.9 simply restates it by saying, you shall not steal. Uh, 1 Corinthians eight, uh, excuse me, 6 verse 10 uh, says, thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, Ephesians 4.28 says, let the thief no longer steal. You could also look at Romans 2.21, 1 Corinthians 5.11, Titus 2.10, Hebrews 10.34, James 5.4, Revelation 9.21. So it's, it's reiterated uh, uh, many times throughout the New Testament. So the command that you shall not steal assumes that there is something to steal, right? Something that belongs to someone and not to you. So you should not steal someone else's ox or donkey, as the command uh, would refer to us in the Tenth Commandment. Uh, but that also applies to his car or her cell phone or computer or whatever, whatever property belongs to them. Because it belongs to them and not to you. So, so to take something that doesn't belong to you is the heart of the commandment. So what the commandment actually does is it assumes... Uh, it infers that there is such a thing as private ownership of property. And I want to talk about that because I think yeah, it's, it's obvious for us to, to just say on the surface, don't steal, don't take what doesn't belong to you. But that, that, imp- that implies something. It implies that it actually does belong to somebody. You know, it belongs to an individual. It belongs to someone who's not you. And so... This is what I think we, we need to talk about, in, at least partly tonight, is the issue of private ownership and what that means and uh, why, and really establish why the commandment exists because there is such a thing as private ownership. So support for private ownership of property is mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament. Okay, so other passages in the Old Testament show that God was concerned to protect the private ownership of property. Property was to be owned by individuals, not by the government or by society as a whole. For instance, God told the people of Israel when the year of Jubilee came, in Leviticus 25.10, it says, you shall, It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each one of you shall return to his clan. So th- there's, there's a call to, then the year of Jubilee, which was supposed to happen, I think, every seventh year, um, private debts were forgiven. People were, uh, if they had lost their land in a, 
in a, a business dealing where they had to sell their land to, to pay off a debt. They could get their land back uh, in that time period. Um, this was a specific thing for the Israelites in that, in that time. It's not to be applied broadly to every society. But there's an assumption in this that if they can have their land back, then, um, then it was theirs. It belonged to them. We also see another commandment in the Old uh, Testament guaranteeing that property boundaries would be protected. So Deuteronomy 19.14 says, You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So in other words, to move a landmark uh, or a boundary line uh, was to steal a portion of someone's land. If you, uh, if you took that, that marker and you moved it a little bit, you know, to one way or the other, you were going to increase or decrease somebody's land. So there was a specific command to not touch those boundaries because there's an assumption that that land doesn't belong just generally to everyone. And it doesn't belong just generally to the, the nation or to the government, but belongs to the person who owns that land. There are also a number of New Testament passages, uh, quite a lot actually, that show individuals had the right of ownership of money and possessions and were expected to use those possessions with wisdom. So the New Testament contains lots and lots of encouragements towards generosity, uh, which we will talk about a bit later tonight. Um, but there's no hint of disapproval of a system in which property is owned not by the government or by society of, in general, but by individual people. So there's, there's no discouragement of, um, uh, of individual ownership in the New Testament. So each individual person was expected to use wisdom in how to deal with what they have, what they've been given. Here's a few of those examples. Um, so uh, Romans 12.8 says, Let the one who contributes do so in generosity. Um, so there's an assumption that the person has something to contribute, owns something to contribute, and they should do it generously. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, On the first day of every week, in other words, when you come to church, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Paul's talking about gathering money for uh, a church that was, uh, that was hurting and needed finances, and he was talking to these rich Corinthians and, and saying, hey, put aside some money every week so when I show up, we don't have to worry about the logistics of collecting it. But, but the key phrase there is, as he may prosper. So there's an assumption that the individual person prospers uh, as they work and they, they earn money, and they should set aside a portion of that for, for the help that Paul's trying to raise there. Second Corinthians, it says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Um, let the thief no longer steal in Ephesians 4, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And we just could keep rattling these off, but you can look at uh, 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 18. Here's another second page of verses here. Hebrews 10, 34. Hebrews 13, 5. James 5, 4 um, is, a, is a rebuke of those who misuse property. Um, 
but it still implies that there's property to own. And then 1 John 3. So we'll, and we'll look at a number of these passages tonight in a little more depth. Um, so, so clearly the implication of the Old and New Testament is that individuals have the right to their own property. Somebody shouldn't take it from them. And that property should be used towards generosity and the help of others as the Holy Spirit uh, leads you to do so. But one of the things we often hear, at least these days, is that um, Christianity or Christians in the early church practiced a form of early communism. Um, because the book of Acts says that believers had all things in common. And so in uh, Acts 2, 44 through 46 and Acts 4, 32 through 35. But I think this is a misunderstanding of what's happening in these passages. So let's just talk about that for a little bit here. Um, these texts certainly show an amazing level of trust in God, uh, in generosity and love for one another. So as a result, um, or it, that, that is all as a result of the Holy Spirit coming down and creating a new life in these people. But I think it's a mistake to call this early communism. Um, there's a couple reasons for that. One is the giving was voluntary. Uh, it was not compelled by the government or even by the church, for that matter. And there's a story in the, in the um, book of Acts about a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira. And if you don't know that story uh, off the top of your head, it's, it's a story where uh, lots and lots of people in the church were laying uh, down you know, money at the feet of the apostles to use that to help those in need. And Ananias and Sapphira were told, own a field. And they sell that field. And uh, they tell the apostles, we're going to give you all the proceeds, all the money we make from that sale. Well, what happens is, is that they, they actually hold back a portion of the sale for themselves. And um, God judges them for lying and ultimately takes their lives. So people can read that. If you don't read that in context, you might go, oh, so they didn't give everything they had, so therefore they were killed. Well, no. The, the apostles specifically say to them before, before they die, the field was yours, you had every right to sell it or not sell it. I'm paraphrasing here, but this is what they're saying is you had every right to do with it whatever you wanted to do. You didn't have to sell the field. No one made you do that. You could have kept a part of it back and given us a portion of it. The problem was is that they lied. They deceived the apostles by saying we're giving everything, but they didn't. That was the problem, and that's why God judged them in that situation. It wasn't because they didn't give all the money for the sale from the sale of the field. Like they had every right to not do that. They didn't have to sell it to begin with. Um, they could have told the apostles, hey, we're going to sell this field and we're going to give you 25%. We're going to keep 75, whatever, right? Any, any scenario would have been acceptable had they been telling the truth. So that's not an evidence of, of a communistic system. Um, and secondly, the reason why I think it's a mistake to call it early communism would be that people still had personal possessions. They, they still had things that were described as their own, uh, particularly their homes. Uh, Acts 2.46 says that they gathered in their homes, that the homes belonged to these individuals. Uh, we see that uh, throughout the 
throughout the book of Acts, as well as throughout other portions of the New Testament, that lots of Christians owned their own homes, right? So you had Mary, the mother of John Mark. Uh, you had Jason, Titius Justus, uh, many Christians in Ephesus, Philip the Evangelist, Manasin of Cyprus, uh, who had a house in Jerusalem, Priscilla and Aquila, Nympha, Philemon, and other Christians just generally that John wrote to uh, in, in 2 John verse 10. So lots of these people had, had their own possession. It's not that everything the church owned had to go to the church or to the government more broadly uh, or anything like that. Um, and, and one of the key differences here is that communism actually seeks to abolish private property. That's the whole thing. Uh, Karl Marx, um, probably the most famous communist, said the theory of communists may be summed up in a single sentence, abolition of private property. That really is, that really is it. Um, communism seeks to get rid of private property and have a communal property. So everything goes to a centralized place, namely the government, and, uh, and everybody's supposed to get a fair share of that. And, of course, that just doesn't actually happen because people in power are, are bad people often so, and, and selfish. Um, so in theory, you know, <laughs> pie-in-the-sky kind of stuff like communism sounds really nice, but it never actually works in practice. And you can see that in just a, the example of North Korea, um, for example. Uh, so North Korea, Cuba, the former Soviet Union, they've, they've all, uh, they all prohibited uh, or still do prohibit in the cases of a couple of these, the private ownership of property. They, they, an individual can't own land. They can't own buildings. Um, and so the government has trapped the people in a depressing cycle of brutal poverty. So in North Korea, which is one of the very poorest countries in the world, um, the per income per capita income on average for an individual in North Korea, so their yearly salary would be uh, on average $1,800 a year. Now, you look at just their neighbors just to the south of them in South Korea. This is the same peninsula. If you know anything about the history of Korea, there was a civil war. They split the, the peninsula in half. The North Koreans embraced communism. The South Koreans embraced capitalism or free market economy. And today you have a difference of, of per capita income in South Korea of uh, 36500 roughly a year per citizen. So compare that to 1800 in the north. Um, that's a massive difference, right? I mean, there's, there's, just, there's a glaring example of how communism seeks to um, abolish personal, private property and then doesn't actually help people flourish. Um, so that's, that's just, again, I'm not like on a tirade against communism. I'm just saying that the church did not practice early communism. They, they practiced generosity and really radical generosity, but still generosity. Okay, so the Eighth Commandment implies private ownership of property. It implies that we have property to care for. Uh, therefore, it is this commandment that sets, sets, apart, sets us apart from the animal kingdom uh, or, or really any other part of creation because we've been given stewardship of what we have. Um, so, so really, it, 
it relates to the issues of work. It relates to the issues of, of, of how we can gain. Uh, it, it even relates to the issues of environmental care, but we won't have time tonight to talk through all, all of those implications. But, but I want to address the, the issue of stewardship tonight because that's, I think, what's underlying the positive command or the positive side of this, you shall not steal, would be you should care for the things you're given and you should have responsibility over them. And that's what stewardship means. Stewardship is about exercising God-given dominion over his creation, reflecting the image of our creator God in his care, responsibility, maintenance, protection, and beautification of his creation. So the things that we have at our disposal, whether that be money or property or land, um, whatever God has given us, we have to have a level of dominion over that, which requires responsibility and stewardship to best reflect God's character. So let's talk through stewardship um, this concept. First, we, we see that we are accountable to God for how we use our property. Now, our is in quotation marks because nothing that we have is actually ours, not truly. It's been given to us by God to do something with and to be responsible for. So if God himself has commanded, you shall not steal, and if in that commandment God establishes a system of private ownership, then it follows that we are accountable to him for how we use that property. This is certainly the Bible's perspective. Uh, Our ownership of property is not absolute, but we are stewards who will have to give an account of our stewardship. This is because ultimately everything belongs to God. Um, Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world, and all those who dwell therein. So that, that verse tells us that everything uh, that the earth is and ha- has upon it and the people who dwell in it and the animals who dwell in it, all of it belongs to the Lord. God gives us a portion of those things uh, to steward and to manage and to care for. So in practical terms, once we realize that God commands Others not to steal one's land or ox or donkey or car or laptop, um, then we'll understand that we have an individual responsibility for how these things are used. We've been entrusted with those things by God who created the universe. And we must act as faithful stewards to manage what He's entrusted to us. And what Paul says about our, his stewardship of the ministry of the gospel can also be applied, I think, broadly to uh, what God entrusts to us. And he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, it is is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Paul's talking about his ministry of the gospel and being faithful in that calling to preach the gospel. Um, but, But the principle he's drawing out about a steward is that it is really broadly applied to all of us, that the, the whole point of a steward is to be found faithful uh, to, the, to the responsibility. Um, there's a, there's a, an analogy for this in the Lord of the Rings. If you've ever read those books or watched the movies, um, there, so the city of Gondor, the people of Gondor, they don't have a king for thousands of years, and they set up uh, a system of stewards. 
these guys who sit on a throne beneath the throne of the king, and they're there just to manage the city, to keep keep things going until the <laughs> king can return. And in a sense, that that does picture what we are called to do here on earth is Christ will return and establish his kingdom fully and finally on earth, uh, where he will be physically with his people and, and will rule and reign. But in the meantime, his, his church and the people who belong to him have the calling and responsibility to care for the world he's made and to be found faithful in that. So the idea of stewardship applies to much more than merely physical possessions and land. It also uh, is that God entrusts us with uh, talents and time and opportunities. And all these things are from God and are meant to be used for God. Um, and so we're equally accountable to him for how we use those things. So yeah, it has to do with our wealth or our lack of wealth or whatever. It has to do with the physical things we own, sure. But it also has to do with the time we have. What are we doing with the time we have? The talents or abilities that God has given us to use for his, for his glory and the good of others. The opportunities that are in front of us. And so we're, we're responsible for that as well. There's also a principle here of stewardship that, um, that says that greater or lesser stewardship, um, there, there, are, there is a greater or lesser degree of stewardship responsibilities. So... In other words, the scriptures don't teach that every single human being has the exact same or equal responsibility of stewardship. There's, there's differing degrees. Um, we read in the Old Testament that the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts in 1 Samuel 2.7. We see in the wisdom literature uh, of Proverbs that the rich and the poor Meet together, and the Lord is the maker of them all. And the, the, this verse doesn't just simply say that God created all human beings. It's, it's actually a specific contrast between rich and poor, meaning that God in his sovereignty has ordained some to be rich and some to be poor, and uh, that he is the maker of their individual circumstances and conditions. So, so there are varying degrees of stewardship responsibility. Some will have much and some will have little. Um, it's not, as, it's not such, so much a matter of whether you have more or less. It's what is God entrusted to you. In the New Testament, Jesus also teaches that the operation of God, the kingdom of God is like a man who entrusted his property to his servants. And this is a parable in Matthew 25 parable of the talents and a talent was a was a, a, a de, basically a denomination of money in that in that time it's not about a, an ability like we'd use the word but he says to one he gives five talents to another two and to another one to each according his to his ability and then he went away the servants received different amounts of money over which they were to exercise stewardship and they were responsible for being faithful with what they had received. So you can read that whole story in Matthew 25, uh, 16 to 30, but Jesus is making the point that, that the, in the world and in the kingdom of God in particular, God gives to some five talents. He gives to some two. He gives to some one. And, and it's not really a matter of importance in that. It's a matter of ability and what God has entrusted to that person. 
And so there's varying degrees. Um, And we also need to remember that many passages in the scripture encourage us to care for the poor. And we're going to explore that in in a few minutes here as well. But there is also an expectation in scripture that uh, God will bring about complete equality of stewardship. Uh, oh, there, sorry, there is no expectation. I totally said the opposite of what, what I meant to. Uh, there's no expectation in Scripture that God's going to bring about complete equality of stewardship or equality of possessions among his people, either in this life or in the age to come. There, there just isn't an expectation that everyone's going to become completely the same or have the same responsibilities. So, Again, I think that that uh, can rub us the wrong way at times and maybe depending on how we view things, but ultimately God is responsible for deciding who has what and what they do with it. Okay, let's talk about the the issue of private ownership a little more. Uh, talk about some of the benefits of private ownership and why, why this matters. Um, first, we see that through private ownership, there is a continual opportunity for glorifying God. We can use our property and other stewardship responsibilities like time and talents. Uh, we can use those things wisely or foolishly. And if we uh, use our properly, uh, property wisely, we reflect God's wisdom, his creativity, and his sovereignty over creation, as well as his love for others. Uh, in, in acting as wise stewards, we, we are imitators of God. We're doing what God would do, and therefore we bring him glory. So this means that we should not think that the desire to own things over which we exercise stewardship is an evil desire in itself. It's actually a God-given desire to imitate in a very faint way his sovereignty over creation. The imitation of God's sovereignty is implied in the command to Adam and Eve uh, that they should fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the creatures. God has given his people responsibilities um, to steward or to to care for or to have some faint level of sovereignty over those things. And so to, to take what God gives us and to use it for his glory is the whole point of this is to, to reflect God and be imitators of God in these things. Private ownership also is a continual opportunity for giving thanks to God. Uh, if God is the one who can richly, uh, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, it's First Timothy 6.17, uh, then we should continually have hearts of thanksgiving to him. Psalm 103.2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. God gives us benefits, and we should bless the Lord and praise him through that and for that. This refrain also occurs a number of times in the scriptures. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So to be given things, to manage and to steward is an opportunity continually to give thanks to God for those things and for the opportunity to enjoy them. Thirdly, uh, private ownership can be a continual source of joy. We're going to look again at 1 Timothy 6.17, right? He says um, that God has given us all these things. He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
He does not say that God provides us with everything to feel guilty about. He doesn't say that God provides us with, with things in order to tempt us to enjoy other things. He gives us the things to enjoy so that we can um, actually enjoy God himself. Right? He wants us to enjoy him, uh, and, and those gifts can point us to that. Right? And so there is obviously a temptation in that to, to prioritize the gift over the giver, but the giver does give us these things to enjoy, and, and that's not wrong, and we shouldn't feel guilty about enjoying the things God gives us. But, but as I mentioned, this is, a, this is a test for our hearts, and private ownership is a continual test for our hearts. So even though the possessions of God, uh, that God entrusts to us, are good, and they are meant to give us joy, um, they can also turn our hearts away from God towards the things themselves. Psalm 62.10 says, If riches increase, set not your heart on them. So we must not allow uh, our hearts to be drawn away from God as we increase or have, have more given to us. But we should continually have the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 73 who says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So in this passage, uh, the psalmist says that God is my portion forever. The, the reader would naturally think, uh, the original readers would think of a portion of land or possessions that had been allotted to him, his portion. Um, but the psalmist's perspective is that the portion above everything else is God, not, not the things, not the land. And this is also why Paul in uh, 1 Timothy 6 tells us um, or warns us that the rich in this present age have a temptation to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, and they should instead set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So that's the whole context of 1 Timothy 6, 17, is that for the rich, there's going to be a temptation that we're setting our hopes on things that are not God, um, but we should set them on God. And God is the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. In addition, uh, the ownership of property tests our hearts regarding care for the needs of others. It shows us a glimpse of ourselves and where our hearts really are. For, uh, uh, the Apostle John in 1 John 3.17 says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So to have the world's goods and have the ability to help someone in need, and yet closing our heart against that person um, is an indication that the love of God is not really strongly rooted in us. So there's a real, uh, a genuine issue there. And so again, it's, it's, it's an issue of motivation in the heart, and we can't help everyone in the world, we know that, but uh, we can and should do with our, our um, worldly goods uh, what we what we're able to do for others. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But um, we also need to recognize that wisdom is required for the use of property. 
there's a number of dangers when it comes to uh, finances or, or possessions. And one of those is the danger of materialism. Um, so ownership of property is a good gift from God. We've established that. Uh, but the Bible also gives us many clear warnings against loving material things too much. Paul warns that an elder must uh, be not a lover of money. It's one of the qualifications of an elder. Uh, other passages speak clearly of the sin of materialism. You have Matthew 6.24, where Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So you can't have your loyalty divided in this. Uh, again, we see in the same, um, well, let's see, 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10, uh, Paul writes that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That, that uh, phrase, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, is probably one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible where they will just drop the first part and say, money is the root of all kinds of evils. And that's not what it says. It says that the love of money, the, 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 un, the unbiblical or sinful tendency to love that money leads to all kinds of evils. And we certainly see that in the world. Um, we see all kinds of awful things happening as a result of, a, of an unhealthy love for money. But money in itself is just a neutral thing. It's not good or bad. It just is. So it's what we do with it and what, how, we, how we put our affections towards it that matter. Uh, Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the, the writer of Hebrews points to the reality that we have uh, a God who will never leave us or forsake us. So we don't need to be afraid and put our hopes uh, in money as our, as our um, ultimate love in the world. So whether or not someone is led astray by love of money is primarily an issue of the heart, right? It's, um, other people can see outward in indications of a love for money, um, which is how we can know if, if a candidate for an elder position in a church is a lover of money. We, there's, certain there's certain external things that show up in a person's life. But every one of us ultimately has a heart issue with this that we need to guard and, um, and daily trust in God and love him above all else. Uh, Psalm 62.10 says, If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once again. Um, let's talk also in this about uh, a theological error when it comes to money, and that is the error of the health and wealth gospel. Um, so... Related to the dangers of materialism is a danger of a, what is a false teaching? It's, um, it's, it's a heretical doctrine, I believe. Uh, it is called the health and wealth gospel. Sometimes it's referred to as the prosperity gospel. 
it's a kind of teaching that says that if you have enough faith and if you just give enough money, then God is going to uh, make you prosperous and protect you from sickness. Uh, this, this teaching claims that it's God's will for every believer in this lifetime to have good health and material prosperity. And so our role is simply to believe it, to have enough faith and to make a positive confession of that faith with our spoken words. So there, this is a whole crazy thing in, in the church um, right now. But, but yeah, this basically fundamentally the health and wealth gospel says if you just believe enough and you give enough, you sow the seeds, you're going to reap all of these uh, earthly rewards or earthly um, yeah, material blessings and health and all the things. Uh, one of the most famous proponents of this is Kenneth Copeland. Um, and and he, here's what he writes uh, to explain his, his view on this. He writes that Jesus bore the curse of the law uh, that should be on our behalf. Uh, consequently, there is no reason for you to live under the curse of the law. No reason for you to live in poverty of any kind. So now it's like, wait, what? wait a minute. Okay. How are you, again, how are you connecting Cursed under the law with poverty. I don't know. But that, he makes that leap very quickly. And then he says, since God's covenant has been established and prosperity is a provision of this covenant, you need to realize that prosperity belongs to you now. You must realize that it is God's will for you to prosper. This is available to you. And frankly, it would be stupid of you not to partake of it. You must realize that prosperity is the will of God for you. Now, there's a lot of problems with this, and we'll talk about, talk about them. Um, but, but here's the thing. This is what's so subtle. And, uh, like, yeah, I guess what's wrong about this on a subtle level is that that is theoretically true in an eternal sense. The, God will restore our bodies to full health in eternity. God will give us all things the kingdom belongs. The earth belongs to us, according to Jesus, right? The meek will inherit the earth. We have these promises, but those are always meant to be eternal promises, uh, uh, spiritual realities, not, not to make this jump to connection that Kenneth Copeland does, which is that applies to your material and physical life here and now. So it, it can be really uh, deceptive, uh, if we're not thinking about it quite clearly. So obviously I disagree with this. Uh, let me give you some of my reasons. Um, number one, there is no New Testament promise of wealth for believers. You'll never find it. There's no verse in the New Testament that promises, uh, that promises you that God will make you wealthy. It just isn't there. Instead, we find promises that God will provide for his people's needs. Right? Philippians 4.19 is a good example of this. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You can also look at 2 Corinthians 9.8 for the same idea that God is going to supply our needs. Now it is true that the Old Testament promises say, uh, um, Proverbs 3.10 for example says, Your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine, and so the, the the health, wealth, and prosperity people will take verses like that and say, "See, you, you're meant to have the physical overflow of of wealth 
um, which would have been in the Old Testament seen in you know, your barns being full and you having lots of wine and all those things. But you don't find any promise like that in the New Testament. This is because the New Testament places a relatively greater emphasis on spiritual blessings than the Old Testament and a relatively lesser emphasis on material blessings. Um, and so I, I think where, where we have to understand here is this, that the Old Testament uh, teachings on prosperity fall under the category of typology. Uh, and this is something that I, I'm going to teach through as we go through our, our Bible, uh, how to study and read the Bible stuff. I'll talk about typology uh, quite a bit, I think, because it's it's really helpful uh, to see the New Testament or the Old Testament through that lens. Um, the things that happen in the Old Testament are pointing towards something that is fulfilled in Jesus. Um, they, that's That's just true of everything, right? I mean, you can read the book of Hebrews and that's basically the point of the book of Hebrews. He rattles through all of these Old Testament systems and people and things and and points to how Christ is the fulfillment of that. That's like, that's the whole thing. And so when you talk about these material blessings, they are pointing to something. They, they're not meaningless. They're not just to be rejected, but they point to the reality that, that we will have those things in Jesus Christ. Spiritual blessings, right? It's Ephesians chapter one that it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So all the promises of God find their yes in Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. Uh, that is true, but they all find their yes in him, in Jesus. Not to be applied to, well, we have this uh, we've got this promise that my barn is going to be full. So that means I'm going to have all the money in the world. I won't even be able to contain it. I'm going to be Scrooge McDuck swimming in my giant vault of money. And no, that's now some people obviously have greater and lesser degrees of wealth. And some people will be filthy rich. Um, but that's not a universal promise to all people and, and not to, certainly not to all Christians. Um, another reason why uh, the prosperity gospel falls flat is because uh, unlike miracles of healing, there are no New Testament miracles that make people wealthy. Jesus frequently performed miracles of physical healing. And I, and I actually do believe that God still will at times, not in every situation, of course, but I believe God still can heal. I, I do. I believe that. I, I I don't, I don't think we are told in James 5 uh, to call the elders together to pray for healing and to confess our sins that we may be healed. I think there's something there. It's there for a reason. Um, but what you never see in Jesus' ministry is somebody having a miracle performed where they're left with piles of gold coins um, and they're just able to go and take all that home. When Jesus fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, what he was doing was he was meeting their, their immediate needs. There were 12 baskets full right at the end of it, but he had 12 disciples, so they got to take those home. It wasn't the, it wasn't the rest of everybody. It wasn't the 5,000 that took all these home. Jesus didn't feed them to, to keep them fed forever. In fact, that's why when you read that story in John's gospel, um, 
in John chapter 6, they come back to Jesus the next day and they want him to do it again. And, and he basically just shuts it down and he says, no, you don't want anything to do with me. You just want the food. You just want the fish and the, and the bread. Like, no, we're not doing this. Um, and so a lot of people at that point started to reject him because he was uh, not giving them their, their material blessings that they were hoping for. And so there are a couple of examples where, where there's um, provision of money in uh, that Peter caught a fish and it had a coin in its mouth, but that was to uh, pay Jesus's taxes. <laughs> he owed he owed money at the moment, and so he was like, "Ah, just go catch a fish; it'll it'll pay our taxes for us." So, so that that was an example. But again, that was what he needed in the moment. He needed to pay his tax, and it was a coin. It was the amount he owed. It wasn't this overabundance of of prosperity materially. Thirdly, we see that the New Testament portrays several poor people as examples of faith. And this is one of the big things that that gets uh, goofy with the prosperity gospel is that they have this belief that if you just believe enough and you have enough faith, you're going to have the health and you're going to have the wealth. But that's, uh, that's ridiculous, actually, when we look at what the scriptures teach. The New Testament has a very different message. There, there are um, many examples of people who were obedient to God, who were rich in faith, but still were financially very poor. Uh, there's a few examples I'll share. One is the example of Christ himself. Who could argue that Christ lacked faith? He didn't. Uh, and he was extremely poor. He depended on other people to meet his financial needs. He depended on a fish to pay his taxes. He, right? Of course, he's God and he's ordaining all of that and all this. But uh, Jesus himself says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, Paul says, Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 8 that, that Jesus was poor, that though he was poor, he took on poverty so that you would be not poor. And, he, of course, he's speaking about the spiritual realities there that Christ's physical poverty leads to our spiritual wealth that's that's Paul's point in 2 Corinthians but Jesus has uh, himself commended the poor particularly the widow who only had two small copper coins that she put in for her offering uh, in addition Paul uh, praised the generosity of the Macedonian Christians who gave freely out of their extreme poverty uh, the Macedonian Christians were extremely poor, and yet they were still generous. Paul himself, uh, who had great faith, was not wealthy. He said uh, in 1 Corinthians, or maybe this is 2 Corinthians, I, don't, I have 1 Corinthians down, but he said, to the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And he spoke of traveling from city to city on his missionary journeys through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So Paul's ministry was not one of great material success either. So Jesus is, is a contradiction to the idea that if you just have enough faith, you'll have everything you need. Uh, if you just have enough faith, you'll be rich and, and healthy and all those. It's just not, it's not true. James additionally also warns 
um, or also uh, wrote more generally to all Christians in the first century. What he says in James 2.5 is, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? And James is dealing with a church that there's a lot of tension between the rich and the poor. And uh, the poor are kind of being shunted aside and the rich are being, you know, being rich people and doing their thing. And um, the church is not reflecting very well what the, what the gospel calls them to. And so James confronts them about that and says, God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. So these verses um, sound very different in emphasis uh, from the prosperity gospel. Right, where financially wealthy people are held up as examples of faith in God and faithful obedience to him. Some leaders in the prosperity gospel movement have uh, visibly uh, opulent lifestyles, flagrantly showing off their wealth, most of which uh, comes from sacrificial donors of very poor people who are being manipulated by them. Um, that's what's so sick about it, actually is uh, when you have a guy whose name is Creflo Dollar, uh, literally, his, I don't even know if that's his real name, but that's what he goes by, he's a preacher. Creflo Dollar uh, manipulated a bunch of people to buy him a, a new private jet. He already had one that still worked, but he wanted a new one. Um, ridiculous stuff, you know, ridiculous stuff. Uh, it's hard to put those lives next to Jesus and go, yeah, that's how, that's how this should be, right? Um, so many people, both believers and unbelievers, instinctively object to this. Um, and, and I think there's a, there's a reason for that. We, we see a different pattern in the New Testament. Another thought here on the prosperity gospel is that the New Testament does not teach us to seek prosperity, but actually warns us of its dangers, which we've already talked a bit about here. Um, so we don't need to belabor it. But the prosperity gospel Advocates, uh, advocates teach people to seek God for prosperity, to believe that God will give it to them, and to confess in their words that God will give or even that God has given it to them, this name it and claim it idea. Just name it and claim it. It's yours. Just take it. Um, and, uh, and the New Testament authors do not speak this way. So, again, we've looked at 1 Timothy 6, uh, 8 through 11, but but let's just look at, this uh, again for a moment it says but if we have food and clothing with these we will be content but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction so again you're seeing the warnings of of prosperity what he's calling the people to is contentment well, as Christians, we're being called to is to be content with what we have. And yes, like I'm not trying to contradict myself. Right? I've already said that there are varying degrees of stewardship, that God does give some more money than they need. Um, and if you have more than you need, then you should be generous with what you have, right? That's, that seems to be the picture. It's not that being wealthy in and of itself is evil. You know, I'll get to that in a second too. But uh, there's a few other passages here um, Matthew 19, 24, Jesus says, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
And after Jesus says that, his disciples are just shocked at this and say, well, then who can be saved? Because the desire was for everybody to be rich. Everyone wanted to be rich. So how in the world can Jesus say this? Um, and and Jesus' response is with God, it's, it, it, you know, nothing's impossible. God can save rich people too. But but it's there's something that gets in the way of many people who have far more than they need where they don't see their need for God. That's that's Jesus's point. Uh, Luke 6, 24 says, but woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. And again, he's talking about people who are rich and trusting in their wealth, that love of money issue. Um, and so uh, we can go on to the next one here. James uh, says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you? The ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And then James uh, 5, 1 to 3 says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and you will eat your flesh like fire and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Again, James is addressing this issue of loving money too much to the point that we are um, just consumed by it. I want to be clear here that the New Testament is not teaching an anti-prosperity view either. There's another perspective called the poverty gospel, which is just as unbiblical as the prosperity gospel. Basically, just think of it this way. If you have to put something in front of the gospel as a qualifier, it's not the gospel. Okay, that's, that's just a good, good rule of thumb. <laughs> if you have to put something with a hyphen and then next to the gospel, it's, it's a mistake. Um, the gospel is, is sufficient. And so the poverty gospel would be the exact opposite of the prosperity gospel, which is that only the poor should be, uh, should be Christians, right? And that the, the Christians should take vows of poverty and, and uh, throw off all worldly goods and live in caves or something. And, and of course, that's not what the Bible is teaching either. We have to have a balanced view of these things. Uh, what we're called to is, again, wisdom to live with generosity with the wealth that we're given as good stewards. That's what we're called to. And, but our primary purpose should be to pursue the eternal rewards that we have in Christ. So that's the, that's the balance, I think, that Scripture gives us. Okay, let's talk about um, issues of poverty and wealth then because we, we've kind of touched on this and we're going, uh, we should probably discuss what, what the broader issues are related here. Um, so if poverty or wealth are not in themselves morally right or wrong, how should Christians think about economic inequalities in either nations or in individuals and how should we think of serving the poor i think that's where we need to go to uh i I don't think that wealth and poverty on a biblical level is the main issue poor people can love jesus and many of them do in fact that it's actually easier according to jesus to love him when you're poor than when you're rich (laughs) and rich people can love jesus and can be generous and willing to share um, those are those are all true. So if that's a morally neutral ground, if there's not inherent good or bad in money or poverty, 
let's think about how how inequality um, or or some people who are plunged into poverty and others aren't. How do we think about this as Christians? Well, the first thing we need to recognize is that some inequality economically is inevitable. It, it's just gonna it's gonna happen that we live in a in a world where there's not gonna be full equality on all these things. So before considering the questions of poverty, it's helpful to clarify a general notion of inequality. It, it may seem surprising to us to think that some inequalities of possessions in themselves can be good and pleasing to God, right? That's, that could be surprising to some of us. But it should not be surprising uh, because there's no sin or, or evil in heaven, and yet there will be varying degrees of reward in heaven with varying kinds of stewardship that God entrusts to different people. When you stand before Jesus to give an account of your life, he's going to say to one person, you shall have authority over 10 cities, and to another, you will be over five cities. Now, I don't know how that's going to work and what that's tangibly going to look like, but that's what Jesus says in Luke 19. There's going to be a divvying up uh, at the judgment seat of Christ uh, of authority, even on the new, uh, new earth. And so, um, again, I don't know how that, that's beyond my pay grade. That's his job to d- divvy it out. Um, but there's going to be an eternal degree of inequality, if you want to think of it that way. Not all of us are just going to have even, even square, everything's the same. And so the world itself, it, especially a sinful world, is not going to have equalities in economic uh, capacity. So... So there will be inequalities of stewardship and responsibilities in the age to come. This means that the idea of some inequalities of stewardship um, must be good. Some of them, right? Maybe not all of them, but if God is okay with giving some 10 cities and some five cities, it, it's not a bad thing that there's not equality in that. Paul also teaches this to some degree in um, uh, the Corinthian church, he says, uh, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive what is due uh, for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So this implies a degree of reward for what we do in this life. And inequalities are actually necessary in a world that requires a great variety of tasks to be done. Some tasks require stewardship of large amounts of resources so like an owner of a steel mill or a company that manufactures airplanes, uh, for example. And some tasks require stewardship of small amount of resources. Okay, so we, we, I think we all get this. Uh, there are certain things that require a high degree of skill set, a high degree of education or intelligence or ability, and things that, that don't. And Again, that doesn't, it's not a moral good or bad. It doesn't mean that those who have a job running, you know, managing a, a giant manufacturing company that employs thousands of people is inherently better than someone who doesn't. That's not the issue. But there are just differing degrees of, of ability that God has given. And so God has given some people the, the ability to do amazing art or music or athletics or mathematics or science um, leadership, business, buying, selling, you know, what God has given a variety of skills. And if uh, reward for one's labor is given fairly and is based on the, 
value of what a person produces, then those with larger abilities in such areas will naturally gain larger rewards. Um, a CEO of a multi-billion dollar company is going to make more money than you. He, he, he or she just is. They just are. Uh, because what they're doing, uh, one, produces a lot more money, and two, uh, it, it's, it's just a different degree of, of skill to run something that complex. And so, yeah, that, we, shouldn't be, we shouldn't begrudge people for that. Um, so since people are different in abilities and uh, the effort they put forth, I don't think that there could be a fair system of rewards for work unless the system had different rewards for different people. So, so I think that this is just like, this is always the debate we get into when it comes to like the minimum wage and somebody working at McDonald's, should they make the same amount as somebody who's not working at McDonald's, you know, again, it's not wrong to work at McDonald's. I just went to McDonald's today. I love those people. Um, I'm just saying that there is a different degree of, of uh, skill set that's required to do other jobs. And perhaps those jobs should pay, um, pay a better wage or, or, or a higher wage. But again, it's just there's that constant tension in, in this. Um, so I, I also think here that... Um, it's never been God's goal to produce equality of possessions among people. Uh, and it will never be God's goal to do so. So in the year of Jubilee, thinking back to that idea, agricultural land was returned to the previous owner and debts were canceled. But there were things that were not returned or not equalized. Uh, money, jewels, cattle, sheep, these things were not, not everything was returned fair and square. Uh, houses that were inside of walled cities were not reverted to previous owners. So there, there were certain degrees, even in the Old Testament law, that wasn't full, total equality of these things. So I don't think we, we uh, should see uh, inequality of possessions as wrong or evil, not in themselves, of course, there can be a misapplication of that, and obviously it's a nuanced conversation. Um, but uh, inequality in possessions provides opportunities for glorifying God. It, it gives, uh, if God gives us a small stewardship with regard to material possessions or opportunities and abilities, then we can glorify him by being content in him, trusting in him for our needs, expecting reward from him, being faithful to our commitments, uh, as for those who have larger resources entrusted to them, they can, be, uh, they can trust in God by not trusting in their riches and being more generous and giving uh, out of that um, to the work of the church or to missions organizations. Um, we, we know that inequality in possessions uh, or opportunities or abilities provide many temptations to sin. There are temptations for the wealthy uh, or those who have other kinds of large stewardships to be proud or to be selfish or to think highly of themselves and to not trust in God. And on the other hand, those who uh, God has entrusted with less uh, face temptations to covet, uh, to be jealous, to not value the position and calling in life which, with God, which God has called them to at least for the present time. So there's, there are temptations on either side of this inequality issue. But such temptations that accompany wealth and poverty 
and the wrongful actions of the rich and the wrongful actions of the poor that sometimes follow shouldn't, should not cause us to think that inequality in itself is the evil or that inequalities are wrong or that God's goal is to just bring total equality in possessions. Inequality in possessions, opportunities and abilities will be part of life now and in heaven. So they, they must be in themselves good or at least have a purpose and provide many opportunities for glorifying God. But let me make one more distinction here. Um, the fact that all inequality uh, is not wrong does not nullify another frequent theme in Scripture. That poverty is not pleasing to God, but is a condition that Scripture commands us to seek to eradicate. So when we talk about inequality, we should never have the position that says, well, those poor people are just always going to be poor. We should not do anything to help them because that's just their lot in life. That's just what they, what they get. Um, that's not what the Bible teaches either. The Bible teaches that, um, that we should try to overcome inequality uh, or not that we should try to overcome inequality, I'm sorry, but that we should seek to overcome poverty. Um, but our focus must be that. It must be overcoming the issues of poverty, not inequality itself. So in other words, I think that the issue isn't about let's you know, burn down the whole system and get rid of all the billionaires and spread out all the money and make everybody even Stevens. I don't think that that's in any way what the Bible calls us to do. What it does call us to do, particularly as God's people, is to help those who are financially hurting and to try to meet those needs. And so that gets us into this topic of how to help the poor. How do we help the poor? What is the best way to do that? And what is our calling in it? So... Um, in connection with this discussion of solutions to poverty, some are going to argue that governments or societies should practice what, what is called social justice. Um, I want to clarify my, my view on this issue uh, or whatever. I just want to address it because um, I believe that individuals, governments, and societies should act in ways that are just, of Of course. The Bible contains frequent references to justice. But I don't generally use the term or the phrase social justice in my preaching or teaching. You've probably never heard me use those words. Um, It's not because I don't believe in justice. uh, But there are some other reasons why I've chosen not to use this particular phrase. One, it's not found in the Bible. And so because it's not found in the Bible, now again, we can use terms that aren't found in the Bible. The Trinity is not found in the Bible. Um, But because it's not found in the Bible, we can define it in all kinds of different ways. Like, I think that, and I I get this, I, I talk about this a lot. We need to be precise in what we mean by things. We need to have clear definitions. And if we have a clear definition of what social justice means, and you and I can agree on the terms, and I, I don't care if the words, the phrase social justice is used, that's fine. If it's something that we can agree on that the Bible teaches. Uh, the problem is, is that that phrase has all kinds of meanings for all kinds of different people. And so I just, for the sake of clarity, uh, I try not to use the phrase in my preaching because if I say social justice, 
10 out of 10 people are going to interpret that in a, in a different way. And it may not be the way that I actually intend for it to be understood or what, I'm, what I mean by it. So I just try to avoid it for that purpose. Um, secondly, I, I think that the actual usage of the phrase social justice means different things to different people. And it's, uh, it's just a vague, ill-defined term. So I've already kind of said that already. But um, yeah, I would just rather focus on something that's a little bit more precise. And then uh, thirdly, I, I think that phrase social justice can wrongly encourage a victim mentality and resentment towards the entire society or nation. Um, and this could be because uh, we're not, you know, being precise in what we mean by this. Um, so rather than precisely specifying illegal or immoral activities by an individual, the adjective social focuses blame on society as a whole. So there are true injustices in the world, but but instead of like saying, okay, this thing by this person or this agency or this government or whatever is an evil and, and working through that, we just kind of generically throw out the word social and that just implies a broad, a much broader uh, issue than I think we, we need to deal with. Um, so I just think it's not a helpful phrase to use in, in this context. Again, if we can sit down and talk through what, what we mean by this, let, let's do that. And I, I don't have a problem with the phrase in and of itself, but I just think it's uh, sometimes ill-defined. Okay, so with that in front of us, let's, let's look at what the Bible actually teaches about helping those in poverty. Number one, it's clear from the Bible that we should help the poor. That is an abundantly clear teaching. The Bible gives us both general and specific commands that followers of Jesus should help and serve those in economic poverty. On a general level, we are told to love our neighbors as ourselves, or to let our light shine so that good works may give glory to God or to do good works. Um, Ephesians 2.10, Matthew 5.16 Matthew twenty two thirty nine. So again, just the ge- the general teaching of the Bible is to love people, care for them, do good works towards them. But then we also see that specifically, we are told to care for the poor. Galatians two ten, Paul writes, only they asked us, they being the apostles um, in Jerusalem, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So the apostles, as they commissioned uh, Paul and Barnabas to the mission, uh, he's talking about this in, to the Galatians, and he's saying, hey, when we met with those guys and we, we were sent out by them, they, they told us to remember the poor, to, to care for the poor, and that's what we were eager to do. First John 3.17, I've quoted this already, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Again, a specific command that if you have resources, and you see someone in need, you should help them. A couple passages in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 15, uh, 7 and 8, say, if any among you, if among you rather, I'm having trouble reading today, sorry. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of the towns which your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your hearts or shut your hand against that poor 
brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. So again, the command is if somebody is in your, in your neck of the woods and they become poor and you have the ability to help them, you need to help them. Deuteronomy 15.11 says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. That's another thing that I didn't really touch on on the inequality thing, but the Bible specifically does teach that there will always be poor people. There will always be poor. Jesus says it, and uh, Deuteronomy says it. And he's quoting probably or at least alluding to this passage, but there's always going to be poor. Therefore, God says, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. The issue here is not that we should uh, demolish all poverty or somehow seek to upturn a system. It is to help the individual poor among us, those who are actually poor. There will always be poor people in our lands, and, and we, we should open wide our hand to help them. Psalm 41.1 says, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. Proverbs 14.31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him, honors his maker. Um, So in some nations of the world, uh, laws and um, entrenched special interests can be structural forces that make it impossible for individual people to rise out of poverty. Uh, The laws and the court systems function so that the powerful elites keep all the power and retain all the wealth for themselves. Somehow these powerful groups must be persuaded or compelled by law to give up some of their power and privilege and their tight hold on the wealth of the nation. But note that this must be done because the law has been so unjust and criminal actions by the powerful have gone, gone unpunished. It's not to be done simply because some people are rich and others are poor. So because some people have, uh, but because some people have acted immorally and illegally in how they've oppressed the poor and the defenseless. So uh, this is just, I'm just trying to get at the issue of, um, there are some structures, I think particularly in communistic societies in particular, there's a whole structure that literally keeps people poor. Like that's, we, we touched on that at the beginning of this. It is a structure that makes the elites wealthy, extraordinarily wealthy, and the rest extraordinarily poor. And you can see that in North Korea. You can see that China has somewhat evened out the playing field a little bit, although there's still, there's still a lot of inequality there. Um, but in most nations where where you have a communistic system or a heavy government control of the economy, um, yeah, you're going to see some fat cats and some extremely poor people. And in that case, we should a- actually try to seek to, you know, for what, however we can do that, to compel them uh, that that is uh, a bad idea. And and if it's in our nation, since we live in this nation, we don't live in a system like that right now. Um, if we see areas in our in our nation where there is clear structural or systemic uh, structural problems, we need to seek to correct those. We should. But that's, that, that's because those things in and of themselves are immoral, not because poverty exists. Like there is a distinction there. We're tackling um, the, the injustices, not the, 
uh, not the fact that there is poor people and rich people. That's not what we're shooting at. Because there's always going to be poor people and there's always going to be rich people. But if there's, if there's criminal activity happening, then of course we should seek to re- rectify that. So, uh, so if the Bible commands us to love and care for individual poor people that cross our paths, and I think that's the primary thing it calls us to, uh, should not our love for them lead us to be even more eager to seek to change oppressive laws and policies in an entire nation when we have the opportunity, thereby to help many thousands or even millions of poor people all at once? And I think, yeah, if we have the ability to do that, um, we, we should desire to see structural change happen. If the Bible commands us to love and care for individual poor people, I just, sorry, don't duplicated that slide, sorry. Um, we should also uh, be eager to provide short-term relief and direct aid to poor individuals and communities. So we're called to help the poor. Some of that may be structural uh, help. Some of that mostly is going to be individual help. But what we should really be seeking is to help individuals and communities with short-term relief. So James warns us that uh, words alone are not enough to help the poor, but actions are necessary. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James 2, uh, 15 to 17. So that passage is really clear. If somebody in the church or somebody that you interact with on a regular basis is, doesn't have the, the daily needs of clothing and food, you should have uh, the intention to help them tangibly as you're able. Not just say, well, go in peace, be warm. Be filled. That's really cruel, right? That's, that's the point, is that that would be a cruel response. But what we should do is actually live out our faith. So it's right for Christians to regularly uh, give food, shelter, and other necessities to those who are poor and cannot afford these things. Uh, there's many charitable organizations. There's churches. There's even governments around the world that regularly help poor individuals and communities in this way, and often very effectively. So I, I don't think we have to reinvent the wheel. I don't think we have to be the ones that funnel all the money. We, we can actually give money to help uh, people in, in a variety of ways, whether that's through charitable organizations. Um, one I would recommend is Compassion International, an amazing group uh, of, of people. There's all kinds of good ones out there. Um, some programs dig wells for clean water. Some provide medical care. Um, some build schools. Uh, Compassion International is is one of my favorites because it is it is church partner based. It is they they go into a community that has a church that they can partner with to sponsor children who are in poverty. Um, and I I love it because so Acts twenty nine is a network of church planting churches. Um, and Compassion, a number of years ago, partnered up with Acts 29 to say, hey, Compassion is a, is a ministry through the local church. And if there's a community that needs help that doesn't have a local church, would Acts 29 plant a church so that we could partner with that church and help these people? It was just a really cool kind of mix of our, of our missions. And uh, I thought that was really cool. So Acts 29 was 
active and, and has been active in planting churches uh, in primarily third, third world countries that, that need um, a lot of help with poverty. And then compassion comes along side of the church planting efforts to provide some of those tangible needs. So it was a really, really cool thing. Um, I also want to address here just the, the, the place of government uh, in, in helping people in poverty, particularly through welfare programs. What, is, what should Christians think about this? Um, sometimes we hear Christians propose that civil governments should not be involved in helping the poor uh, because there's a pattern of churches doing that in the New Testament. So that's, that's one argument you'll hear is that, well, churches are the ones in the New Testament helping the poor. And that's true. Um, but also we have to recognize that the Bible was written at a specific time in history. And uh, the Roman Empire did not have a structural system in place to help the poor. So now that we do, the question is, is what should we do with that? Is it okay for the for the state to step in and help um i don't think there's any teaching in the scripture that would prohibit that uh i I think that there's a place for it and if you think about it it just i know it's not the case in the in the u.s but in many countries evangelical christians constitute only a tiny percentage of the population and so if all the help was to just go through the church, there's just no way that those churches could help, right? So there's situations where we got to recognize the math on this. And, and I think that there's a place for the government to, to play a role. Um, from a biblical perspective on government, I think it seems good that uh, government acts as a servant for our good, right? Romans 13, 4, that's what the government exists to do. So I think we could agree that the government having an aid program is doing good, uh, at least it may be misguided and it may not be always effective, but the intention is to do good for people if it prevents them from starving or, or dying uh, of, for, for lack of shelter. Um, it would obviously not be good for a society to allow those things to, to happen if they have the ability to meet those needs. Um, so I think it, there is room for government-supported programs, but I do think that they should be limited to cases of urgent need. Um, I, I think they should be a safety net, which is really what they were meant to be anyways. Um, they should keep people from going hungry or being without clothing or shelter. Uh, the, the government steps in often during natural disasters and allocates resources for people to get into safe places. This is all very good, I think. And, um, and yet if it's an ongoing uh, resource where people are basically on a, on a state-funded you know, l- lifestyle, I think that's a problem. I do. I, I don't think that uh, the government should be providing uh, a living for, for people. I think they should be providing help to get people on their feet. Um, to give them the help they need in the case where they lose their job or they have a, a massive financial crisis or whatever the case is, to, to keep them alive, to keep them fed, to keep them sheltered, to, to help them find their path back into uh, the workforce, ideally. But um, 
And I, and I think that there's a huge role for the church to play in this too. I don't think that it's f- solely on the government. I think the church has a role to contribute to help uh, for food, clothing, shelter, and maybe even levels of education depending on uh, what the church is able to do. So I think it needs to be a both-and approach. I don't think it's just all government or all church. I think the partnership can exist there. Um, for individual people, the permanent solution to poverty is productive work. The Bible doesn't encourage any able-bodied person, and that's the key, able-bodied, right, or, or mentally capable or whatever you want to say, right? Somebody who's able to work uh, to just live off donations from others. Dependence on donations from others, whether it's from friends or church or government, isn't God's ideal for able-bodied human beings on earth. God's purpose is for us to work and to create goods and services and not to simply receive donations. Uh, Even in the Old Testament, where there were provisions for the poor to be able to eat, there was a system in place where farmers were not permitted to harvest the entire field. They had to leave a portion of their field ungleaned. And, uh, and that was so that the, the poor had the ability to go through the field and, and pick grain and wheat or whatever that was growing in the field. But they had to do the work to do it. Like they, they weren't just to sit there and have the baskets of food delivered to them. They were given the opportunity to actually go and work and do, do this and, and pull out what they needed. And we see this practiced in the book of Ruth in particular. We also see that the New Testament rebukes those who are idle uh, in First Thessalonians 5 and Second Thessalonians 3. So the Bible's expectation that people work to earn a living should not be seen as harsh or unkind. And the fact that God gave Adam and Eve work to do before there was sin in the world indicates that we should see work as a blessing, a valuable gift from God. Um, now, there is pain and difficulty in work because of sin, Right? It's a, the sweat of your brow that you're going to have food and, and that kind of thing. That's true. Work is much harder now and much, more in, much less enjoyable, perhaps. Um, but it's still intended to be a good gift from God. We also see that earned success gives more human dignity and fulfillment than gifts of money. There's an author named Arthur Brooks, who is the president of American Enterprise Institute, and he argues that the primary economic factor that makes people happy is not money, but what he calls earned success. And that is having a specific responsibility and then doing good work to fulfill that responsibility. Brooks writes that the secret to human flourishing is not money, but earned success in life. Um, So the, the argument here would be that people actually find more fulfillment in work than in just handouts. So it's not surprising that God created us with the ability to develop goods and services, commanded us to work in order to do this. And it's also not surprising that he created us so that we'd have a great sense of happiness when we follow his plan. Work to create goods and services and achieve success in that. So I think to, to summarize this issue of, the, of helping the poor is in moments of crisis, in, in seasons of difficulty, we do need to step in and help, of course. Uh, the Bible's clear on that. Um, but, but the ultimate goal would be to, to get the people who are unable to work into a place where they can work. 
And obviously that's, that's not always the case, right? Somebody may have a physical disability or a mental disability. And in that case, if family and friends uh, can't step in to support that person, then, then I do think that the government has a role to play for that and to help them. Uh, but ideally, their, their family would be there to be their support system. Okay, well, one more, one more thing to talk about real quick, and this isn't going to take long, but I want to talk uh, on this about our personal financial stewardship, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, because we've been talking about money, possessions, and what, so the question is, is how, do we, how do we use what we have been given? Um, both the Old and New Testaments teach that God's people should give away some of what they earn. So in the, in the Old Testament, it was a tithe. It was one-tenth. The New Testament does not actually put a percentage on our giving, but it does call us to generosity. It says, for God loves a cheerful giver. So I think that the, the point is, is that how much we give is not prescribed anymore, uh, but it's a matter of personal conviction, and it's a matter of biblical obedience. I think we we need to see... Uh, that are that we are called to generosity. We are all called to different levels of that, depending on what we can do. But but we should we should be willing to give out of our personal resources. It is also uh, true that it's wise to save money for a time when we cannot support ourselves. Uh, most Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, most Americans, the vast majority of Americans, say they do not have any buffer of savings at all. Um, and so it, it's wise, and I don't know where everyone in this room is at on this, and hopefully you're not in that spot. But if you are, uh, it's wise to implement a, a plan to set aside savings. Um, the the recommended amount is obviously flexible. I I talk I I use a lot of Dave Ramsey's stuff on this just because it's common sense, and he's not like the king of everything, but he does uh, he does have some good good thoughts on some things. Um, and he, t- he talks about starting with just $1,000, putting it in a savings account for emergencies. You don't touch it. You just, you just let it sit there. And then as you continue to be disciplined and save, you should let that grow uh, to, to eventually build up to about three to six months of living expenses if you can. And that's going to be just depending on where people are financially, will be feasible or not. Um, but but that would be a, a wise goal to at least to try to shoot for. Um, it's also wise uh, to pay off debt or to stay out of debt if you're able to um, as a matter of financial stewardship. Um, so once you set aside an emergency fund, uh, the next thing you should focus on is paying down your debt if you have it. Uh, credit cards, car payments, student loans, would be the, the priorities to focus on because they'd carry the highest interest rates. Uh, Ramsey has the principle of snowballing your debt payments. So when you pay off one debt, you take all the money you were putting towards that and you apply it to the next debt and you just keep compounding and you go into the snowball effect where you're starting to pay off your debts. Starting with, um, he would say, start with the lowest debt you have so that you can get a win. You know, you can pay something off. And then, then it just continues to compound from there, and you build up to your highest debts. Um, I, again, Dave Ramsey, people love him or people hate him. It does, doesn't matter whether you love him or hate him. I think there's wisdom in it. There's wisdom in lots of other people too. Uh, but, but try to find uh, some, 
some resource out there if you don't have any on uh, personal financial wisdom. And I think that staying out of debt is is the wisest thing to do because um, if you're if you're in debt, you don't have freedom to spend the money that you have the way you want. So if you want to live generously, if you want to be able to use God's um, God's resources that He's given you in the best way possible. Uh, it the, having the most amount of freedom from debt is the way to do that. So if you're able to, again, it's not always feasible. Most people can't buy homes without debt. That's understandable. Lots of people can't buy a car without some level of debt. We get that. But, but try, to, try to avoid credit cards like the plague if you, if you can. And um, they're just, yeah, can be, can be real bad. So that's what I've got on that. And if you want resources on that, I can point you to some other things. But... Are there any uh, any questions, thoughts, complaints, what, whatever you wanna wanna bring out would be fine. And this is uh yeah this is this is the end of, of our of this class. So there you go. That was a lot. But all right, I'll stop the recording here and now.